Happy Wednesday, y'all. Hey, we had some rain this week. What do you know? And uh, well, it might cramp your dog walking style a little bit and create a little more mud in the backyard. We needed it. Yep, this is Jill. Welcome, welcome, welcome to K9360. We're here with you on Wednesdays talking, talking the dog thing. Um, and I'm going to get right to it today because earlier this week on Monday, I learned about the death of a very, very um, well-known, well-respected luminary in what we might call the second wave of competitive obedience training in the United States. First wave started with Helen Whitehouse Walker and Blanche Saunders back in the 1930s when they first introduced competitive obedience or the idea of it to an American audience and subsequently to the American Kennel Club. And things continued on until the 1960s when the AKC convened a panel of judges and exhibitors and they did some updating and formatting and reformatting and created the Obedience Trial Championship, among other things, and um, made possible what we do these days. This particular luminary, uh, he passed away on Monday, 92 years old, living in suburban St. Louis. Um, and he, his name is Dick Gutzloff. And I want to share a little bit of a remembrance of my friend. Uh, I was grateful to get to know him, uh, he and his wife, Kay. Uh, I did that in the context of, well, I knew him as a, as a fellow exhibitor um, when they were still living in Illinois. And uh, I used to see Dick at dog shows all the time. And he and Kay... Uh, you know, it's a small community. Everybody kind of gets to know each other. And then I had an opportunity for a book project to interview both of them. And so uh, let me see if I can do a fair job of hitting the highlights. Um, here's a quote from Vicki Hearn in her book, Adam's Task, where she says, almost all stories of great dogs, trainers, owners and breeders are stories about the mystery of nobility of finding one's own right relationship to it and especially of what the role of vision and knowledge is and the book started out as an extension of my own years as a trainer and an exhibitor where I really understood how we come to participate in the story of dog training or dog sports and that's the sort of story of interest to average pet owners from folks who know us as their obedience instructors to those who stop in the park to watch us train our own dogs and later come up to ask, how do you get your dog to do that? Um, when I hear other trainers tell their stories or attended their seminars or read their books or watched their videos, there was a familiar kind of progression, that preoccupation that begins in childhood, right? The story characterized by the recitation of a series of names, the telling of dogs like you tell beads on a rosary, maybe. Each dog like each bead representing a certain kind of new understanding. And um, those are the stories that I wanted to tell in the book um, because it wasn't really 
uh, a book that I wanted to write. It was a book I wanted to read. It, uh, it started, truthfully, in the midst of editing a book on competitive obedience for small dogs, and I was meeting a non-doggy colleague for coffee after having spent the morning poring over the particulars of teaching the utility classes. And so when he asked, what have you been up to, I told him what I had been up to. Um, I kept interrupting myself to see if he needed more information about what it was I was trying to describe him. And he finally did interrupt me and was just shaking his head. He said, you know a lot about this. When are you going to write your own book? And really, I, I was kind of horrified. I didn't, um, I didn't need to write a book about training. There were already plenty of books out there about training. Um, and that's when he asked me, okay, well, if that's not the book you want to write, what book do you want to read? And that took me to interviews with a series of trainers, all of whom were people I admired and respected, whose stories I thought would tell an amazing or provide an amazing profile of how people who were all contemporaries of each other came of age in that second wave of competitive obedience in the in the mid middle 60s 1960s um the trainers are dick and k gutzloff joanne johnson helen phillips and bob self senior so the first section of the book uh the chapter title was you train your dog to please yourself was my conversation with dick and k gutzloff who can be heard both separately and together their individual and shared histories in the sport provide a historical and even a theoretical context for looking at the development of competition obedience beginning in the early 1970s when Dick was a founding member of the Illini Obedience Club, which went on to be the sponsor of the largest and then most prestigious obedience tournament in dogdom. Kay's interests went back not just to Chicago, but all the way to England, where she was born and from which she imported the foundation stock for her now very uh, well-known heel-along border collies. Uh, their homebred obedience child champion, heel-along chimney sweep, was for a time the number one obedience trial champion in the history of the American Kennel Club, having accumulated more than 8,000 obedience trial championship points. And she sweep has her spot in the record books um it was fun to talk to them because with respect to conditioning training and campaigning a dog dick was ex as expansive as Kay was terse but their experience strategies and trainers habits really reflected their priorities which included producing some of the finest competition and working dogs in the country um Here's my description of, of going down, going to their house. At the time, they were, well, here's what I wrote. Coming south out of the mountains of northern Arizona, the terrain changes dramatically just north of the Chino Valley. Granite Mountain looms in the distance as a reminder that you've not quite yet forfeited the mountains for the desert surrounding Phoenix. 
Dick and Keg gets off home is hidden in a subdivision named for the nearby Granite Landmark and just 10 minutes outside the retirement community of Prescott. The Gitzloffs are retired too, although it scarcely seems that way, considering their busy show schedule, full mailbox, and ringing telephone. Their home was an expanse of peach-colored stucco accented with teal. Inside and out, the house reflects the colors of desert and mountain, a synthesis of sand and sage, scrub pine, and boulders that Kay refers to as the high chaparral. They moved from Chicago to Prescott in 1992, designed and built this home themselves after living for a time in town. The new house has an ideal setup for dogs, a separate kennel room with all the necessities, including banked kennels, hydraulic grooming tables, an elevated tub. Adjacent to the indoor facility are a series of outdoor kennel runs, opening into an enormous fenced exercise area. The tall, heavy-gauge chain link is not for deer, Dick will tell me, but to keep out the javelina hogs that live along the ridge. Javelina, roadrunners, coyotes, jackrabbits as tall as the border collies are not the only local residents. Granite Mountain is home to a sizable population of mountain lions. Breathtakingly beautiful and still sparsely populated, this is an area of central Arizona that's a well-kept secret, and the Gitsos' only complaint is that it sometimes seems like a long way from the dog show. I will talk with Kay on a blistering Monday afternoon. It was 114 that day in Phoenix, which, as I recall, was a a new record. Um, She and Dick train and show dogs for clients. Um, She grew up in Great Britain, came to the United States in 1965. Traces of Kay's accent still linger She speaks briskly and purposefully, moving with confidence around a German Shepherd who stands patiently while she brushes. Tanned from the Arizona sun with short blonde hair and piercing eyes, she's quick with a smile and a laugh, making jokes and telling stories on herself. Later that evening, I wander outside to the edge of the property to the carefully leveled and fenced-in training area, the only green grass on the two-acre spread, except for a small spot outside the back door near the flower beds, a part of the yard that is the only dog-free zone. Dick is working with Bogey, a nine-month-old golden retriever who's learning some lessons about front and finish. Bogey belongs to a long-time client, and once the dog's training is finished, he joins the Border Collies in the van and will be off in search of obedience titles. I watch quietly as Dick skillfully manages both leash and tennis ball, as well as the powerful young dog. There is clearly training taking place, but bogey? It all looks like play for him as he bounces enthusiastically back and forth, his eyes on Dick, the source of balls and the food and the most wonderful games. Dick watches him carefully, his gestures subtle, his voice quiet and calming, and in just a few minutes, the bouncing begins to look like a finish, and the dog is happily bringing his ball to front. The next morning, Dick and I sit down in a peach-colored leather living room chair to talk. He is tall at six foot three, with a shock of white hair and deeply set blue eyes. He laughs easily and often, and when he does, those eyes twinkle, and I know the story will be a good one and well told. As we chatted, 12-year-old Sweep lies under my seat, her black nose resting between my tennis shoes. Across the living room above the entertainment center are framed photographs of Dick and Kay and their dogs. Dick and Harvey winning Superdog, pastel sketches of Sweep at work and at play. A family portrait showing the couple with Gunner the Golden, Gretel, Kay's dachshund from long ago, Rock, 
their first imported border collie and Meg Healalong's foundation. I can set my tape recorder on a small glass top table and on the shelf underneath I see five of the gleaming golden dumbbells awarded to the Gaines Pepperoni Superdog winner. On an adjacent shelf are terrier statuettes and for a moment I'm puzzled until I remember that the bronze Irish terrier adorns the trophy given then for Kennel Ration Dog of the Year. One of these belongs to Rock, the other three to Sweep. Glass shelves on either side of the fireplace hold Border Collie, Golden Retriever, and Dachshund figurines. Only upon close examination is it evident that certain of the driftwood and lucite sculptures and some of the glassware are trophies as well. In 1999, the Gitzlofs relocated again from Arizona to Texas, and later that same year, they lost their beloved Sweep. Uh, Kay developed her interest in agility and published a book on making the switch. Um, I'll note here before I go find some of the stuff that Dick shared with me that although I made a point of talking to them separately, their connection and their partnership was evident everywhere from their interruptions and interpretations of each other's perspectives to the intersections of the stories they told of their years in dogs and their investment in competition obedience. I asked Dick about who had been his influences. He started training dogs in 1967, I think he told me. Um, he told me Milo Pearsall was a big in- influence. You could still find Milo Pearsall's books uh, on, probably on Amazon. Uh, Dick said there was a guy in England by the name of Charlie Wyant, probably the guy in England he most looked up to as a trainer. Dick says, some handlers have influenced me in my handling style. Um, Milo Pearsall's was the very first seminar I went to, and the first seminar I went to, and one of Jack Godsell's was probably the second. I don't go to seminars now, I give them, right? Very characteristic of Dick. I asked him if good dog trainers were born and made. He said, I think it's a bit of both. I don't think you can give a person timing. I don't think you can give a person the ability to read a dog. I think that has to either be developed or you're born with it. But I think your ability as a trainer can be improved by time with a dog. There are some people you can give them a great dog and they'll never do anything with it. But others, he says, for example, take footwork. Um, My natural stride is a conditioned stride. I don't think about how I have to walk in the obedience ring. And I'm sure my stride is different than it would have been without the dogs. I never walk with my toes out. I walk with my toes dead ahead, which is not normal for a human. You move your toe out very slyly, but I don't because I've trained myself for 30 years to walk with my feet straight. And I stand with my feet straight. Kay said, as teachers, there are a lot of things that Dick and I laugh about. I don't know if anyone's mentioned it or if you've ever heard the word phantom dog, but you see it at regionals. There are people walking the healing pattern time and again, and they're not just walking the pattern, but their trainer or the person they work with has putting them through has been putting them through. They, they do it without their dog. They do it with an imaginary dog. It's hysterical. And it's the one thing that Dick and I believe in. You just don't walk the same without the dog. Uh, that all this walking in the world, when that dog is with you, it's different, right? And uh, you still see that. In fact, the AKC encourages some of it. Um, 
I asked Dick about a good dog, whether a good dog was born or made. He said, I think a good trainer can make a mediocre dog a good dog, but you can't make a lousy dog a good one. I think if you gave a poor trainer a sweep or Bernie Brown's Bristol, they'd ruin it. I think it's easier for a good trainer to make an average dog great than it would be for a poor trainer to keep a great dog great. I really do. He said, we don't go through dogs. We train almost every dog we've ever had, but I think we're careful about picking the right dog. If you get the right material to begin with, you don't have to go through dogs. And he, uh, he goes on to suggest when it comes to getting the job done that uh, over the years, the only modification he's really made has been, uh, had to do with attention, right? I think we all, we all do that. Um, all right, let me flip through here. Here we go. All right. So Dick is talking about his first dog and he says, um, uh, there were a lot of dog shows in the area at the time. Clubs were springing up. Um, and then I was training in open. And of course he says to me, you know that Bernie Brown was the big gun at the club. He was a big winner and he had what they the only modification he's really made has been uh, had to do with attention, right? I think we all we all do that. Um, all right, let me flip through here. Here we go. Boards. The trophies were sitting in the clubhouse, and every week I'd come in and I'd look at them, and that was something. That was something to train your dog for, and it was. There was nothing else, you know. High in trials, I never thought I could win. But the John Berger Award, that's what I wanted to do, especially when my dog started getting real good. So he worked on it. And eventually, he never won a high trial award, and he didn't win the John Berger Award either. It was Bernie Brown who won the John Berger Award. Right? Bernie, who became one of Dick's nemesis, nemeses. But he wrote, he said to me, my dog started getting better and everybody said, that's a good dog. I picked up different ways to improve by watching the people who were winning. Velma Janik, Jack Godsell, Bob Self, Marley Whiting. They came into the area to show and I always watched them, learned how to handle from Velma and all and watched their footwork. One day at the club, I was training the dog and Dick Chris came up smoking his guitar and he was kind of the cock of the walk Mr. Big Shot at the club and he walked up to me and he said you know something you've got a 199 dog but you're a 192 handler and he walked away he never explained what he meant I always try to analyze things that people say and try to analyze things when I watch people train their dog why they're doing it why it's working whether I could do it whether it would work for my dog so I figured it out I had to upgrade my handling to meet the dog's performance. So I worked and I studied handling and I watched. I watched the best. Bernie was a good handler. Thelma Janik was excellent. Ron Roberts, the AKC representative, he was very good. 
I really worked on training that dog and perfecting her fronts and finishes and attention. And he went on to uh, utility, right? And he won high in trial. Now, I was talking to Dick in 1997, and he said that was 30 years ago. And now he says all the big guns are out there. Velma, Bob Self, Marley Whiting, Jack Godsell, Bernie Brown, Fred Obit, who used to train and show dogs, the top dogs in the area. Velma Janik had a motorhome, drove all the way from Muncie, Indiana. That's 225 miles south of Chicago, and we're 100 north. She drove 325 miles to come up and win a $100 high-end trial. When I won the class with a 199 and high combined in first place, I won $200. So she came up to me, and I remember it like it was yesterday, and she said, you got lucky today, boy. I looked back at her and said, yeah, Velma, but what a day to be lucky, $100 and high-end trial, and I walked away. And it got back to me later on that she said to somebody, that guy's going to give me trouble. So for me, that was quite a compliment. Right. Um, let's see what else can I share with you. Um, lots of name dropping, uh, which might not be as relevant to everybody if you're not sure um, who these folks are. Uh, but near the end of the chapter, I included uh, kind of a, a 20 questions, right? So... I asked all the trainers the same questions. My first one was that it has been said that the true measure of an obedience trainer is revealed in two exercises, the drop on recall and go outs. These two exercises more than any other single set of exercises demonstrate what kind of trainer you are. What do you think? Dick would say, I, Dick said, I would have to say it isn't the training of these exercises that separates the great trainers from the wannabes, but maintaining the performance of these two exercises. If you only show a few times a year, you're less likely to have a dog anticipate the drop or stop short on go-outs. If you show your dog 40 to 50 times a year, it's a pretty stupid dog who doesn't know what's coming next. And then I asked him what his favorite exercise was to teach and why. He said, healing. Since it's the basic foundation for all obedience levels, you have to score at least a 39 out of 40 possible points to be competitive. I asked about his least favorite exercise, and he said, sits and downs because they are boring for dog and handler. What's the hardest exercise to teach, and what's the easiest exercise to teach? Dick said, I don't find any exercise difficult to teach. Perfecting the exercise is where you spend your time. Compare perfecting directed jumping and the novice stand for exam. Maintaining perfect go-outs never ends, where getting a perfect stand for exam is relatively easy. Once the exercise is taught, you rarely have to practice it unless you have a spooky dog. Maintaining performance is the key in all cases. So I asked about uh, his long-term involvement with training and showing dogs. What has surprised and what has intrigued you? And Dick says, Because I was a competitive person in sports in my youth, competing in both basketball and football, I was always trying to win. When I discovered obedient trials many years later, I realized I could be competitive once more by taking first place in my class, winning high in trial and high combined, or winning the Kennel Ration Award for the most ouch points in a year. 
Obedience has given me a number of thrills and excitement, like being kissed by Lindsay Wagner when Harvey and I won Superdog at the 1977 Classic in Los Angeles. Best of all, it was through Obedience Trials that I met my wife Kay, and we've had some wonderful times together sharing the same hobby until agility stole her away. And what disturbed you? He says, inconsistent judging and the fact that AKC cannot get rid of a bad judge once that judge is eligible eligible to judge utility. Um, I'm going to miss Dick. Uh, the last time I saw him a couple years ago was at an obedience trial in Kansas City. And I went over to chat with him and he was 90 years old and still out showing his dog very actively and teasing me about having a personal trainer because he said, you know what people my age worry about, don't you? And I teased him. I said, you're going to tell me whether I wonder or not. And he said, we worry about falling down. And he said, I got to have balance so I can heal with my dog so I can get out here and do these, these amazing things with my dog. And I, I got him to stand up and show me some of the exercises that his personal trainer was putting him through in order to uh, maintain his balance. And, and he looked pretty cute out there, standing on the mats, touching his fingers to his nose. And, and Kay saw him and shouted across the expanse, Jill, stop encouraging him. <laughs> I have to say I was grateful, glad to be encouraging him. Um, because by his example, his talent, his success, and his willingness to speak with me uh, for those days that I visited back then in the late 1990s uh, in Arizona, he encouraged me a lot. He encouraged me a lot. So Godspeed, Dick. Go get him. Say hi to Joanne and Dan and Bill and Bob senior and a lot of other folks uh, that we've lost from the sport and from the earth and we think of them and we miss them and we keep them with us I guess in these kinds of tributes in these kinds of moments so thanks for letting me take the time to share a little bit with you about uh, one of my inspirations Maybe it made you think about your own inspirations for having dogs and living with dogs and training dogs and aspiring to amazing things with dogs because they are capable of lots and lots of amazing things. All right. Thanks, guys. That's the end of our time together. Take care. Stay cool. Um, I have a friend from high school who used to write in everybody's your book, Stay As Cool As You Are, but I don't think she was talking about the temperature. Anyway, hang around. The celebration's coming up. We're always glad to be here with you on KZUM, KZUM HD, the coolest radio station in the world. See you next week. <laughs>